Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, here we go. Welcome to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. Got a couple of quick updates as we get things started today. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was uh, I don't know if I was complaining or just merely observing that uh, we have been blacklisted. Our, our website, lovingliberty.net, was sending up these horrible red warnings of, you know, this is a, a dangerous website, a deceptive website. And uh, I, I didn't know whether to be concerned. I didn't know whether to be flattered. Uh, apparently, Google had blacklisted us. And so quick update on this. Apparently, uh, our website, along with uh, with a couple of other similar websites, was under a very vicious malware attack. And uh, got to tip my hat to, to the folks at Provincia Creative, uh, the folks who do the back end work on our website. Uh, they worked. It was like all hands on deck. Got the problem solved to uh, Joseph Martinez and his staff. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And And as much as it pains me to admit this. Google may have been in the right to flag us. Oh, those words taste awful in my mouth, but there it is. Uh, it, it, it sounds like it was it was a legitimately uh, bad malware situation, and I think we've got her fixed. So either way, the fact you're listening to this tells you that uh, huh, nothing's going to stop the signal, right? Well, here we go. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. On tap this hour, we're going to discuss uh, whether fear is the mind killer that we realize that it is. Jen Mafasati from the Foundation for Economic Education has a terrific take on this. I'll share that in just a few moments. I don't know if you've seen Michael Moore's new documentary, Planet of the Humans, but word on the street is that uh, Michael Moore has knocked the halo off the environmental movement. Yeah, I want to check it out too. And I'm going to warn you right now, just so you have some time to brace yourself. I don't know, maybe a shot of whiskey or something to steady your nerves. But uh, none of us wants to think about the possibility of an economic day of reckoning being at hand. But I have some information to share with you, courtesy of Michael Snyder. 18 unmistakable signs that a record-breaking economic implosion is approaching. This is not to plant fear. It's not to send you off into, you know, the... The, the weeds, you know, running around in circles. Oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. Just we've known this was coming. We knew that there was the possibility that a correction would approach folks. It's coming. And, and you can see some of the different signs that indicate it, we're not going to kick the can down the road indefinitely. The days of can kicking, they've they've at least come to a middle and possibly to an end. So let's talk about fear. I don't know if you're a fan of Dune by Frank Herbert, but I was very impressed that Jen Mafasani brought this up. Uh, it's it's a remarkable uh, novel. It's a bit much for some folks, but there's a lot of wisdom, as is often the case in great novels. And she starts with a quote. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Now, this is Frank Herbert, noted writer of science fiction. He was being scientifically factual when he included that line in his novel, Dune. And Jen Mafasati says fear is, in fact, the mind killer. Now, she says, don't get me wrong. Fear serves a purpose. There are times when fear is justified and its effect on our brains and body are needed to keep us alive. Because we've all felt that jolt of adrenaline when something scares us, our fight or flight reflex readying us to either do battle or dash away. And it serves an important evolutionary purpose. 
but she says the increased speed and strength, along with the heightened senses, like all things, comes with trade-offs. Because the process of fear involves multiple portions of our brains doing complicated things like coordinating the release of various hormones and neurotransmitters and limiting the blood supply to non-essential processes like digestion, it can't do other things as well. In fact, she says, according to the University of Minnesota, fear can interrupt processes in our brains that allow us to regulate emotions, read nonverbal cues, and other information presented to us. Reflect before acting and act ethically. This imparts our thinking and decision making, or the impacts rather, our thinking and decision making in negative ways, leaving us susceptible to intense emotions and impulsive reactions. And all of these effects can leave us unable to act appropriately. End quote. Now, Jen Mafasani says these side effects generally fade away once our fear does. After all, humans aren't built to feel fear constantly. Chronic feelings of fear and anxiety have significant negative side effects on our physical health and emotional well-being. And she says sometimes we can know that our fears aren't rational, but disordered thinking like post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety and panic disorders and phobias, they don't listen well to rationality, which is where the mental health professionals can step in and provide some help. So given all this information... She asks, what happens when something serious like a terrorist attack or a global pandemic scares us? Well, it's perfectly normal to be scared by something like that. But that state of fear often prevents us, all of us, from making smart, well-considered decisions. That's because it's difficult and sometimes uncomfortable to work past fear. At some level, we know that we don't make our best choices when we're afraid And this drives us to seek out those who seem to be less afraid than we are to make important decisions for us. Well, generally, the people our modern society looks to are our political leaders. The problem with that is that our political leaders are just as human as we are. They may have better public public relations teams than everyday people, but they're still human. They're still subject to the same emotions and like fear and the same incentives that the rest of us are. Election to public office does not somehow magically change the fundamental ways that people respond to various stimuli. She says we want to believe that our political leaders, at least the ones we rooted for, are full of goodness and light, that they think and legislate justly with only good intentions in their hearts. And we want to believe this because we want to believe that we would do that if we were in the same position. But as Zuri told T'Challa in Marvel's Black Panther, it's hard for a good man to be king. This coincides with Lord Acton's warning that power corrupts and what we understand about human psychology and what economists call public choice theory. Public choice theory posits that people do not magically become angels upon gaining a position of power like political office. They're still subject to behavioral incentives like the rest of us. And it also states that it's difficult, time-consuming, and since it's exceedingly rare for any single vote to sway the results of an election, not particularly beneficial for voters to be especially informed. Therefore, she says it's very easy for politicians to become comfortable with their positions of power and seek to secure and or increase that power. After all, it's what people do. And it doesn't make sense for voters to keep close tabs on their politicians' behavior because their informed vote weighs just as much as their neighbor's uninformed vote, and it matters just as little. So bad behavior by politicians is often forgotten or glossed over or just doesn't matter all that much. 
Then the scary thing happens. The 9-11 terrorist attacks, the 2008 financial crisis, COVID-19, real problems that are legitimately frightening lead to demands from the citizenry to do something because they suspect they're too afraid right now to make good decisions for themselves. Only the politicians are scared, too. They don't want to die in an explosion or be hooked up to a ventilator in ICU any more than we do. And being just as human and prone to error as we are, they tend to make bad decisions in the heat of the moment. Jen Mafasani says in the aftermath of 9-11, for instance, we saw a huge expansion in the power and scope of the U.S. federal government. From the security theater of the TSA to the broadening of the surveillance state, national security became the perfect excuse for every extension of government into the daily lives of ordinary, peaceful people. After all, you don't want the terrorists to win, do you? Well, we're seeing eerily similar expansions of power now during the current COVID-19 outbreak. And she says a great many decisions are properly being left to state and local governments. Unfortunately, the power granted and then exercised by state and local level state of emergency declarations are revealing just how many would-be tyrants we have in office. Businesses have been ordered closed, curfews instated, travel restricted, prices controlled, all with disastrous and heartbreaking effects. True, she says, burdensome and frankly pointless regulations have been lifted in an effort to slow the economic bleeding and get much needed goods and services to medical personnel. But an economy is not a machine. It can't just be turned off for a few weeks or months and be expected to run like it used to when it's allowed to start up again. She says a lot of people are sick. Some of them are dying. That is tragic and terrifying, and I don't want to make light of it. But she says as a member of a high-risk category, she's all too aware of the risks and the what-ifs and the worries. She knows the fear. But if our own recent history has taught us anything, it's that we must not give in to the fear. We must not let ourselves give away the things that make life worth living on the off chance that doing so will somehow shield us from harm. Our freedom, she says, is our hope and our happiness, and it is mighty. But once we allow it to be taken from us, it's incredibly difficult to gain it back. The crisis will end as all things end. That's not in question. The question that does exist, however, is when the smoke has cleared and we emerge from our quarantines, will we have faced our fears, permitted them to pass over and through us and remain free individuals, or will we, in a flash of terror, have allowed ourselves to be bound by the dictates of others? We're still, how many, well, many of us have asked for it. Now, that is the question of the hour. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. Thank you so much for being a part of our broadcast and or podcast. If this is providing value in some way to your life, understanding or insight, please feel free to share this with the people who matter most to you. Let them know this is just one resource that's available to help make sense of what's going on in our world. So Michael Moore, when I say that name, I get some interesting reactions. Some people, oh, yeah, we love Michael Moore. Other people, and this is probably the majority of the people I hang out with, uh, there's, they almost gasp as they say, Michael Moore, that, that man. Because he's, he's a documentary maker, and he's been pretty, I think, decidedly to the political left. So I was a little bit surprised 
when I saw the article pop up on intellectualtakeout.org with the headline, Michael Moore Knocks the Halo Off the Environmental Movement. I was like, really? Okay. This is by Michael Cook. And he says, right from the get-go, he says, I have to admit that The Planet of the Humans, a documentary about the environmental movement produced by Michael Moore, is unfair. Very unfair. And unkind, too. Very unkind to Al Gore. Alas. But he says, as the Sierra Club might have said, you can't produce clean, green biomass energy without leveling forests. Planet of the Humans was released on YouTube on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And it's free to watch, and it's painful. It's not at all what green activists would have expected from Michael Moore, an Oscar-winning progressive critic of General Motors, the Republican Party, the National Rifle Association, health care funds, and more specifically, the way America is run. And what Michael Cook points out here is that what, what Moore's film argues is that his old antagonists have badged themselves as clean and green, turning environmentalism into allies of big business that he loathes. Green energy, or I'm sorry, green renewal energy and industrial civilization are one and the same, says narrator and director Jeff Gibbs, a longtime associate of Moore. Gibbs claims that Bill McKibben, who apparently is the grand poobah of the environmental movement in the U.S., has praised projects which used biomass to produce energy and even promoted investment in them. Well, it turns out that clean green biomass required forests to be raised to the ground and then tossed into huge incinerators. And Al Gore, the patron saint of campaigners for climate change, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for his Oscar-winning PowerPoint presentation and Inconvenient Truth, was the chairman of an investment fund, General Investment Management, which helped to promote destructive logging in the Amazon. And what about those solar panels? As Ozzy Zener, author of Green Illusions, tells Gibbs, the glass in solar panels isn't made from sand, but from pure quartz melted by lots of coal. And the film shows a ghastly quartz mine in North Carolina, as ugly as any coal mine in West Virginia. Wind turbines provide no power when there's no wind and need to be supplemented by power from coal or natural gas. The film shows a windmill graveyard. Eventually they wear out and need to be replaced. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And green power can sometimes be as destructive as the technology it replaces. Is there anything too terrible to qualify as green energy? Asks Gibbs. He says disdainfully that environmentalists got out of bed with coal companies and hopped into bed with logging companies. And Michael Cook says it's very, very unfair. Climate scientists and environmental groups are furious. Moore and Gibbs failed to interview any non-white experts, one critic sputtered. Oh, boy. Others point out that some of the more scandalous examples of inefficient energy production are years old. Bill McKibben's 350.org and the Sierra Club are unjustly maligned. Some have actually called for the film to be taken down from YouTube. Too late. More than four million people have watched it. Now, the critics are probably right. But even if Moore and Gibbs garble some of their facts, exaggeration and satire are their stock in trade. And they get two big things right. The environmental movement is a religion which you have when you have no religion. Here's a quote from Gibbs. The right has religion and they have a belief in infinite fossil fuels. Our side says, we're okay. We're going to have solar panels, wind towers. 
He asks, could it be that we just can't face our own mortality? Could we have a religion we're unaware of? And Michael Cook says he's right. Just watch the millions of people marching behind Extinction Rebellion banners. Second, he points out, green is easy to fake. As Groucho Marx is reputed to have said, the secret of success is sincerity. Once you can fake that, you got it made. Companies like Amazon, Google, Tesla, and even Exxon are greenwashing their products to make them more appealing to consumers. Greta Thunberg sailed across the Atlantic in a zero-carbon emissions yacht. But several crew members had to fly back, creating gazillions of emissions. So Michael Cook says, I do have some reservations. Gibbs, not Moore, is the director, and he says more spark is missing. The film lacks those gotcha moments which gave his other films their raw power. In his hilarious gun control diatribe, Bowling for Columbine, Moore discovered a bank in Utah which gave away a rifle to customers opening up new accounts. Or in his documentary about the U.S. health system, Sicko, he took three 9-11 responders in a boat to Guantanamo Bay looking for the free health care that the terrorists get. But the problem is, the main problem, he says, is that Gibbs ends up attacking, or rather advocating, population control. That means he's far more radical than the people he attacks. It's not the carbon dioxide molecule destroying the planet. It's us. Ooh. Planet of the Humans, he says, is challenging Paul Ehrlich's discredited book, The Population Bomb. Our human presence is far beyond sustainability, says Gibbs. But Michael Cook says a film made by Michael Moore was never going to be a chocolate box, which everyone likes. Planet of the Humans is meant to knock the halo off the environmental movement. It succeeds. And he says, that's good enough. Watch it for yourself. Interesting. You know, I don't understand the either or thinking that sometimes dictates how the environmental movement goes about its work. And I don't think I've ever seen this more clearly than in, in watching the various protesters who would show up anytime Ammon Bundy, for instance, was speaking. Uh, you know, you would see environmental protesters, very well-financed and well-organized protesters coming to, to decry how, you know, it's, it's all about destroying the planet. And, and it's the, the deception that they were willing to engage in, the violence that they were willing to urge and support against their fellow human beings is, is breathtaking. So I'm not really going to lose any sleep if that halo gets knocked off. I actually appreciate the fact that if more can make the case, look, it, this is a religion. That at least explains why people get so dogmatic and why anyone who questions, for instance, man-caused global climate change or at least the, the idea that, hey, with just enough control over my pocketbook and my freedom, politicians can control the climate. I don't buy into that because that sounds a little too convenient uh, for the sake of politicians who wanted to control my pocketbook and control my freedom in the first place. This is just an, an excuse or a convenient excuse for them to, you know, put the screws to me and everybody else who wants to live freely and keep a majority of what I earn. So to see it called as a religion, that makes me happy. Because when I say, well, I'm skeptical about whether or not this is legit or whether this is really being done for the reasons you say it's being done, they're going to call me a denier. That's a heretic, or at least it would have been in other times. I'm happy to see that there, there are people calling them out on it. And even if it's Michael Moore, you know, blind pig finds the acorn, blah, blah, blah. I'm glad he, he may have got this one right. 
something to think about. When we come back after our break, I'm going to put a little bit of heavy news in your lap. And I'm I'm giving you this warning because I want to make really clear. I don't want to promote fear. I don't want to promote panic. And I certainly don't want to promote a sense of hopelessness. I do think that we owe it to ourselves. And uh, if you have kids, if you have grandkids, we owe it to those who are within our care or within our stewardship to be able to look at the situation realistically, honestly, see it what it is in the light of day, and then proceed forward with the best information that we can. But the bottom line is we have a record-breaking economic implosion approaching. We'll talk about it right after this on Loving Liberty. Once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. This is the bad news portion of this hour of the broadcast, and I'm telling you that. So if if you need to stick your fingers in your ears and start chanting so you don't have to listen to it, I understand. I'm not a person who likes to hear bad news. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I think we are at a point where the, the willingness to face the facts is a necessity if we are to move forward in the right direction, assuming there is a right direction to move forward. I think a day of reckoning is at hand, and, and here's why. This is an article that was posted on LewRockwell.com earlier today from Michael Snyder. The headline, 18 signs that we are facing a record-breaking breaking rather economic implosion in 2020. Now, look, this shouldn't come as a shock. This shouldn't just sound like, well, it's just fear-mongering and someone you know, trying to predict the future for their own financial gain. I don't think we can dismiss it quite that easily. Things have been set in motion, ostensibly to protect us all and to save us from coronavirus, that uh, have have been the catalyst for a very long overdue, like generations long, economic reckoning. 2008 and 2009 was rough, but somehow through stimulus, through quantitative easing, through bailouts, people who control monetary policy and fiscal policy somehow managed to kick the can down the road and delay the effects. I don't think they're going to have that option much longer. And here's why. This is from Michael Snyder. He says, in just six weeks, the entire global economy has come completely apart. All over the world, we're seeing numbers fall faster than we ever have before, and the outlook for the rest of the year is exceedingly bleak. Fear of the coronavirus is going to paralyze global trade for the foreseeable future, and the lockdowns in some nations will last for many months to come. Here in the United States, he says some states are attempting to make an effort to, quote, reopen, but in most instances that will involve multiple stages. Meanwhile, tens of millions of Americans have already lost their jobs, much of the population has already run through their meager savings, and financial institutions are becoming extremely tight with their money. So even if COVID-19 disappeared tomorrow, our momentum would still take us into an economic depression. But of course, this virus isn't going to disappear anytime soon. And he reminds us, after 9-11, our society evolved into an anti-terror state. And his prediction is that COVID-19 is going to permanently alter our society as well. So anyone that was hoping for a quick return to normal can forget it. Because normal is about to be completely redefined. The pace at which economic conditions have deteriorated in recent weeks 
has been absolutely breathtaking, and the numbers just keep getting worse and worse. So here are 18 signs that we are facing a record-breaking economic implosion in 2020. Number one, according to economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal, the April jobs report will show that unemployment, the unemployment rate in the United States is now above 16%. And by the way, he, he documents, he has sources for every single one of these points, just so you know. You can follow him in the article and check him out for yourself. Number two, U.S. manufacturing orders just crashed by the most ever. Number three, U.S. gasoline consumption just dropped to the lowest level ever recorded. By the way, if I saw this correctly yesterday, someone was going, really? Gas for under $2 a gallon in California? When's the last time you saw something like that? Number four, light vehicle sales in the U.S. just fell to the lowest level we've seen since the early 1970s. Number five, the government program that was supposed to get small businesses through this crisis has been a tremendous failure. And he quotes, according to the CNBC SurveyMonkey Small Business Survey released Monday, which surveyed 2,200 small business owners across America, while the $660 billion Paycheck Protection Program was instituted to give them a lifeline through the coronavirus and economic shutdown, just 13% of the 45% who applied for the PPP were approved. Wow. Number six, the coming meat shortages are already here. According to the New York Post, Costco is now rationing meat and Kroger is warning customers of very serious supply problems. Quoting from another article here, Costco on Monday said it will be limiting customers to just three packages of meat per shopper, while Kroger supermarkets posted an alert on the meat section of its website saying it may have li- it may have limited inventory due to high demand. Grocers have been bracing for a run on meat in mid-May as major meat processing plants, including Tyson Foods, have been forced to shut down production. But the shortages appear to come earlier than expected as consumers worried about the meat shortage have been stocking up, experts say. Number seven, global smartphone shipments were down 11.7% in the first quarter compared to a year ago. That represents the fastest drop on record. Number eight, Hong Kong just recorded the worst economic contraction in the city's entire history. Number nine, U.S. consumer spending was down 7.6% during the first quarter of 2020. That actually surprises me a little bit. Because I, I know there were an awful lot of folks engaging in retail therapy via their online purchases, but whew, that's a huge drop. Number 10, American Airlines posted a loss of $2.2 billion during the first quarter of 2020. Number 11, it looks like retail giants Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, and JCPenney are all headed for bankruptcy. Number 12, Fox Business is reporting that Hertz is preparing to file for bankruptcy due to plunging car rental ridership. Number 13, Gold's Gym filed for bankruptcy on Monday. Number 14, Edmonds is projecting that auto sales in the United States this month will be down by more than half compared to April 2019. Number 15, in Mexico, manufacturing activity is falling at the fastest pace ever recorded. 
This is from Zero Hedge. Quote, while few have lofty expectations for economic performance with the global economy still largely shut down, what is happening in Mexico is simply unprecedented. Here are some striking observations detailing the unprecedented economic collapse of the southern U.S. neighbor, courtesy of Goldman. Business confidence declined sharply in April, the seventh consecutive monthly decline, with the index now sitting deep within pessimist territory. The manufacturing and services PMIs also fell sharply in April and are now at the lowest levels on record. End quote. Number 16, more than 30 million Americans have already lost their jobs, and economists are projecting that millions more will lose their jobs in the weeks ahead. Number 17, in March, U.S. home sales declined by double-digit percentages in every region of the country. Number 18, White House economic advisor Kevin Hassett is warning that the U.S. GDP could fall by up to 30% during the second quarter of 2020. Now, Michael Snyder says the good news, or for investors rather, the good news is that stock prices have bounced back quite a bit after the initial crash. And many market optimists are hoping that this Fed-fueled rally will keep on rolling. But others are warning that this is a trap for bullish investors. And Kevin Smith is openly telling everyone this could be the last chance to sell before another huge move downward. Quote, the stock market may be flashing some ridiculously bullish signals, but hedge fund bear Kevin Smith is sticking by his prediction that the Dow and S&P are on the verge of a Great Depression level crash. In fact, the Crescat Capital founder warns this is your last chance to sell before the impending collapse. Now, Michael Snyder says we shall see what happens. But for the moment, the financial markets are doing their best to try to defy economic reality. Unfortunately, economic reality is hitting most Americans like a ton of bricks right now. We are in the middle of the greatest spike in unemployment that the United States has ever seen by a very wide margin. And most of the jobs that have been lost are never coming back. And as bad as things are already, the truth is, this is the hard part for me, that this is just the beginning. That means a whole lot more pain is on the way. It is going to shake our nation to the core. Our economic and financial bubbles lasted far longer than they should have. But now fear of COVID-19 has burst them all. And it isn't going to be possible to reinflate them this time around. So that's the bad news. That's the that's the ugly truth that has to be faced. Now that leaves us with a couple of questions. So what should we do about it? Well, I think the first reality that we all have to face is this means we're all going to feel some pain. We're all going to be in discomfort at some level. And that means our standard of living is likely to suffer. However, I still think some of the standard advice that has held true throughout time, pay off your debts, build your skills and your self-sufficiency, have tangible assets, whether it's tools, whether it's skills, precious metals, barterable goods, be able to take care of yourself and your family, be able to help take care of the people around you, and above all, do not depend on government to bail your butt out. That's probably the most important part of all.
Hey, welcome back. This is the final segment of the first hour of the Loving Liberty Broadcast and Podcast. I'm Brian Hyde. Please hold your calls until the next hour. And let's talk a little bit about the meat supply. I didn't have the chance to get to this one yesterday in the second hour of the show, so I wanted to share this with you. Some great insights from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan. They are the hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast that is uh, put out there by the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Fantastic information. These guys really know their stuff. And the article that caught my eye was titled, Meat Supply Disruptions Are the Bitter Harvest of the Non-Essential Worker Fallacy. Now, maybe it's just because I'm a, I'm a big-time barbecue aficionado. I live to cook with fire, especially on the weekends. I'm sad to say I have infected my son with the same thing, the same desire to cook. And we just that's kind of what we do. That's one of our bonding things. We love to get together and cook amazing things. So I'm a little bit sad. In fact, I'm I'm a little bit alarmed to see that uh, right as he is starting to get this burgeoning uh, interest and desire to, to hone his skills. There is scarcity Meat is getting tougher to come by. It's getting more expensive. And, well, let's just say that, uh, pun intended, the salad days have come to an end, at least for now. Let's talk about why, though. And this is what Anthony Davies and James Harrigan say. They say a central theme of their recent book, Cooperation and Coercion, is that all governments are hamstrung when they attempt to fix problems. Reason being, policymakers suffer from the knowledge problem. They don't know enough to foresee every eventuality that will follow from what they do. So politicians see a problem, they speak in sweeping statements, and then declare what will happen, assuming their edicts will settle matters. But that's always just the beginning. And more often than not, all manner of unintended consequences emerge, often making things worse than they were before their policies went into effect. They give some good examples here. Consider the United States' three high-profile wars against common nouns over the past half century. Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty in the 1960s, Richard Nixon a war on drugs in the 1970s, and George W. Bush declared a war on terror in the early 2000s. So how are those wars working out? Because a back-of-the-envelope calculation indicates that we've spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $23 trillion dollars in our attempt to eradicate poverty, drugs, and terror. Not only have we not won any of these wars, it's unclear that any of them can be won. These three so-called wars have managed to saddle future generations of taxpayers with unprecedented debt. And, as is the case with all coercive endeavors, policymakers ask us to imagine how bad things would have been had we not spent the trillions we did spend. And then they ask for even more money. So now we have unwinnable wars along with institutionalized boondoggles to support them. And they say we see the same sort of thing happening now in the face of the COVID-19 threat that's induced the largest panic attack in world history. In the name of safety, policymakers have shut down myriad productive endeavors. And there will be a raft of unintended consequences to follow. We're already seeing them manifest, and they portend potential disaster as supply chains fail. So, for instance, the first cracks in U.S. supply chains appeared in the meat industry. Smithfield Foods, reacting to a number of workers contracting the virus, shut down its Sioux Falls plant. Kenneth M. Sullivan, president and CEO, explained in a press release that the closure of this facility 
combined with a growing list of other protein plants that have have shuttered our have shuttered across our industry is pushing our country perilously close to the edge in terms of our meat supply. But it's not just the meat plant that's implicated. It's everyone from the cattle farmer to the person who cooks dinner. And there are a number of people who have a place in that process who might first escape attention. The people who make packing materials needed to ship food, the maintenance workers who service machines up and down the supply chain, the truck drivers who move product from one place to another, the grocers who, sh- who sell the product, the daycare workers who care for the grocer's children so the grocers can work, and many, many more are all at risk. Now, this is by no means simply a Smithfield Foods problem. In a full-page advertisement published in the New York Times, Washington Post, Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Tyson Foods Chairman John Tyson warned the food supply chain is breaking. And small producers are in the same boat as industry giants. Millions of pounds of food are simply disappearing from the American pipeline. Chicken, hogs, and cattle are being destroyed. Farmers are dumping milk, eggs, and produce because restaurants have been forced to close. The price of oil went negative because travel restrictions have reduced the demand for oil in the U.S. so much, oil has gone from being a valuable commodity to a nuisance of which businesses can't rid themselves. And predictably, politicians have jumped into the fray with Senators Mike Lee and Amy Klobuchar, Klobuchar rather, leading this charge. They recently sent a letter to top members of President Donald Trump's cabinet, including Attorney General William Barr and Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue, asking for a probe into the nation's food problems. The coronavirus pandemic, they wrote, has exposed troubling vulnerabilities in our meat supply chain that are harming both American livestock producers and consumers. We urge you to work to identify the root cause of these disruptions so we can work together to implement solutions. Now, Lee and Klobuchar may be the only two people in the United States who cannot identify the root cause of the vulnerabilities in the meat supply chain. It's the same root cause that has yielded every other product shortage we've experienced since the COVID-19 response began. It's the virus, senators, coupled with political hubris. In the political class's zeal to contain the virus, any number of things found their way to the back burner, including the nation's food supply. This happened because of two fundamental misunderstandings on the part of politicians what supply chains and essential workers actually are. Policymakers who brought the force of government to bear in managing the economy have demonstrated that they don't actually understand what the economy is. In declaring some jobs necessary and other jobs not, in focusing on one supply chain versus another, policymakers show how little they know about the nation's economy. In their view, they can simply declare things they want to happen, and then those things will happen. But that's not how economies work. An economy is the sum total of everyone's activities. And when the government declares that something must happen, all kinds of other things happen too. Consider how all the non-essential workers have been sent home for the past two months. Who gets to declare which workers are non-essential to the economy and by what standard? Most assume that politicians had the correct answers to these questions. But as we're discovering, there is no such thing as non-essential workers. All workers are essential. How do we know? Because their jobs existed. 
Profit-driven businesses do not create non-essential jobs. Those people's jobs were essential to their employers. Further, those people's jobs were incredibly essential to the people themselves. They need their wages to pay the rent, buy their food, make their car payments, and for everything else that makes their lives livable. But policymakers simply declared them non-essential as if there would be no fallout from that decision. In the same way that each person is supposedly connected to every other person by no more than six degrees of separation, each business is connected to every other in exactly the same way. We cannot declare one business unnecessary without, by extension, declaring unnecessary every other business that relies on it, and every business that relies on those businesses. Food is necessary, and because of that, delivery trucks are necessary, and because of that, engine fuses and wiper blades are necessary, and because of that, plastic packaging in which fuses and blades are sold is necessary, and on and on. And politicians have been cutting the web in myriad ways since this began. And what has happened? Food is not being delivered, and now politicians wonder why. What they really need is a mirror and an introductory economics text. Normal people understand there's only so much any person or any group of people can know. But politicians rarely think of themselves as normal people do. Politicians seem to think they can solve any problem simply by declaring the solution. But those solutions never play out in vacuums. And as Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan point out, here in the real world, every action inspires multiple reactions. To think things will work any other way is just more of the same hubris that got us into the current mess. So what's the correct answer? Somebody write this down. Oh, wait, they already did. It's to leave people alone so they can arrive at their own solutions. People know the relative risks and trade-offs they face. And it should be up to them to act in their own best interests, knowing as many of the details as possible. Will this yield perfect outcomes? Probably not. But it wouldn't yield food shortages and bankruptcies to the extent we now have them either. Well said. Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan, of course, links to, to all of these articles in the show notes. Stick around. Hour 2 of Loving Liberty is on the way next. Next. 